Last summer, Julie and I got to take our COVID-delayed 30th anniversary trip to England and France, which had been planned for 2020. And our first sightseeing trip, which, by the way, if you've ever traveled to Europe, you know your first sightseeing trip is really just fancy language for we're going to try to stay awake after an overnight flight. Um, but that's what we did. Our first opportunity was touring Westminster Abbey. And apart from the amazing architecture, and I mean it, it really was, it was truly spectacular, mind-blowing. And apart from the history of the place, what stood out to me most was this. I found myself thinking over and over, and maybe it's just because I'm a pastor, but I found myself thinking over and over, this is what a house of worship looks like when it exists in a state where there's a state-run church. This is, this is what it looks like. The abbey was packed to the gills with tourists admiring the building. I mean, it was elbow to elbow. I'm quite certain that I caught my little European version of COVID walking around Westminster Abbey with the masses. But as they were walking around admiring the buildings, I, I noticed that they were all very studiously, like Julie and I wound up doing, um, visiting the tombs of people, because there are many people buried in the Abbey, but visiting the tombs of people who had famously denied the God of the Bible like Charles Darwin, or who claimed to be a Christian but held heretical views of God, like Isaac Newton, or visiting the tombs of people who denied the existence of God altogether, like Stephen Hawking. All three of these men and many others honored with a final resting place in a house dedicated to the worship of God, a God they in all some way denied. And then as I continued to explore the Abbey, I think I began to really uncover its true purpose. If you're um, a Brit, I don't mean to offend, but it seems to me that the, the true purpose of Westminster Abbey was the glorification of the crown and the kingdom of Great Britain. You began to realize that everything that the Abbey had become had been done in service to the state to whom it owed its existence, not in service of the Almighty God to whom it really owes its existence. In fact, it became obvious that the God of the Abbey's primary purpose was to preserve and make great England. That's what it seemed to exist for. I was also struck by the fact that while all these people were milling around, and again, thousands of people milling around the tombs of non-Christians in the Christian house of worship, that there was a worship service actually being conducted. An Anglican rector was dutifully reading his homily to, it seemed to me, no one in particular. I mean, a real-life Father McKenzie from Eleanor Rigby, if you like the Beatles, writing the words of a sermon no one will hear, no one draws near. So it was a bit disorienting for someone who's a follower of Jesus to be in a house of worship presumptively dedicated to his God that, that wasn't spiritually dead so much as it was just spiritually disinterested. It was a secular religious expression. And it was a peek into where we are rapidly heading in our country, even though we lack and will always lack a state church. What claims to be the Christian faith, it seems from my seat, is being swallowed up by a secularized in service of politics religious exercise whose God exists solely to preserve our power. I think that is the chief threat to gospel witness in America today, 
And I don't think that there is anything else that rivals that threat. So how does the true church respond in that kind of environment? Well, I'm glad you asked. You didn't, but I needed to say that rhetorically. Why don't you find, if you would please, Daniel chapter 2 in your copy of God's Word. If you're familiar at all with Daniel, you know that it is the retelling of how he and his faithful friends navigated a secularized in service of politics, religious culture in the ancient city of Babylon. All of the religious exercise existed to undergird the authority of the king and the state. So their lives and their actions can serve as a template for the lives and the actions of the church of Jesus Christ in America living in our own modern-day Babylon. And this is especially true, I believe, of Daniel chapter 2. So we're going to walk through that together this morning. Now, Daniel 2 begins with the news that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the greatest ruler in the world at that time, had experienced a dream, and this dream had utterly terrified him. He becomes convinced that it actually has something to do with his demise. And you'll see how he arrived at that conclusion a little bit later. But what heightens all of this worry is that we know historically at this time there were multiple plots against him to take his life. And so he begins to immediately, as a result of this dream, become suspicious, very suspicious, of everyone around him, especially those who were his trusted advisors. Perhaps he wondered, this dreams mean, dream means that they are plotting against me in some way. Is that what this dream meant, that these people I trust are coming after me? Now, normally in these circumstances in ancient Babylon, the king would tell his advisors what dream he had and then ask them, well, can you explore Babylonian science of dream interpretation and tell me what it means? But in his mind, desperate times called for desperate measures. If his advisors were plotting against him, and that's what this dream meant. Him having the dream would alert them to the fact that he was on to them, and that might cause them to accelerate their plan beyond his control. So not knowing who to trust, not knowing if his advisors were plotting against him, he comes up with a novel and, frankly, terrifying approach to his advisors of finding out what the dream meant and also something that would allow him to know who he could trust among his advisors. So he summons them, and he says, I got a puzzle for you. I had a dream. I want you to tell me what dream I had. And then I want you to tell me what that dream meant. And oh, by the way, if you can't do it, I'm killing you. I mean, the stakes could not have been higher, and the response is understandable. They're terrified because what the king has asked them to do is impossible. But the king refuses to budge and in a rage, as they continue to say, we can't do this, he orders his guard to kill every single advisor in the kingdom of Babylon. And if he didn't know who he could trust, he wasn't going to trust any of them, and he was just going to kill them all and start with a clean slate. Now, in chapter 1, we read that Daniel was one of these advisors. He and his friends had been conscripted by the king and assigned to a school of sorts where they would learn Babylonian spiritual customs, which included the interpretation of dreams. And they did this. They learned these customs, but they learned these customs without adopting the worldview that informed these customs. The fact that they had not adopted those customs as their own worldview becomes apparent when the king's guard knocks on the door and says, hey, Daniel, I'm here to kill you. Daniel negotiates with the guard, 
and the king himself, actually, ultimately, for extra time, promising that he would meet the king's demand by telling him the dream and its interpretation when the appointed time came. But, but rather than fall back on what they had learned from the Babylonians, rather than say, well, I, I want to pull my books off the shelf and I want to dive more deeply into them to see if I can find in them what you're seeking, Daniel goes to his friends. He goes to his house, it says in verse 17, and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, which we know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes to them, he tells them what's up, and then he told them, look at this, look at verse 18, to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He says, we're not going to fall back into what they taught us. We're going to fall back into what we know to be true. We're going to seek God Almighty. We're going to implore Him in His mercy to show us what the king demands. And then very matter-of-factly, verse 19 says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. He was given a vision in his own dream, it says in verse 19. But then this leads Daniel to a marvelous prayer of thanks. Look at verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. You see, Daniel may have learned the uh, religious and cultural customs of Babylon, but his trust was always in God, and it never wavered. So he goes to the king, and he reveals to him what no one else could, both the dream and its interpretation, which God had shown him, and he secures his life and, as we'll see in a little bit, the lives of every other person who advised the king in Babylon in the process. So what was the dream? We need to look at this. It's going to be strange, but we need to look at this for just a moment. Look at verse 31 of Daniel chapter 2. Here's the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, and think of it like an idol or a statue in our culture. You, you saw a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So you can see how Nebuchadnezzar would have had this dream and interpreted it as being a threat to him in some way. So what did it all mean? Look at verse 36. This was the dream, Daniel continues speaking. Now we'll tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven, the God of heaven, 
has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And into whose hand he, the God of heaven, has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And at this point, he's probably fearful. Uh, I thought so. This is bad. But he goes on. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay. So the kingdom shall partly be strong and partly brittle. So you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. And I just read you several verses that, if you were to be honest with me, are the entire reason you never read the Old Testament, all right? Because you're thinking, I-, I don't get that. I don't know why this matters. But let's make sure we get the main point. Daniel says the king is being given a sweeping view of future world history. After his kingdom, there would come three more Now, we do an incredible, I think, disservice to this chapter. In fact, I think we miss the entire point of this chapter when we make this chapter all about the details of this dream. But we do need to at least have an idea of what the dream is about to understand the main point of chapter 2. The traditional view, the view that I hold to, claims that Daniel is being given a perfect picture of future world history, that he is being told that after him the Medo-Persian Empire would rise, and then after the Medo-Persians the Greeks would arise, and then after the Medo-Persian, or after the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire would arise, and that's what he is being shown. And, And I believe he is being given that picture 500 years before the last of these events take place. That is the traditional view. But it's such an accurate retelling of uh, world history that secular scholars look at it and claim it's prophecy after the fact. In other words, what we have here is somebody living about 100 years before Christ looking back over history, imagining someone named Daniel and putting this prophecy in the book to uh, teach something about the, the Jewish God. I, I don't believe that. I believe that it is best to understand this for a variety of reasons as being what it presents itself to be. I believe that this is a book written about 500 years before the time of Christ where God is being uh, gracious and he's giving a pagan king a future view into world history, but 
but none of it is so that we can guess which kingdom comes next. None of it is. Because the point, the real message that Nebuchadnezzar is being given, and by extension, the real message that the beleaguered Jews in Babylon are being given, is that kings and kingdoms will pass away. Even the greatest of the kings and kingdoms will pass away. But there will come one king, and there is one kingdom that will reign forever. The rock is the kingdom of God. The filling of the entire earth shows the establishment of his rule. The vision communicates that God is in control to such an extent that even the greatest kings and kingdoms the world has ever known or ever will know cannot stand against him. To which all of the Jews in Babylon would say, hallelujah. The real message of the vision is that there's no one greater than the God of Daniel. There is no one greater than the God of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar gets that that's the point. In fact, he says this in verse 47. Truly your God is God of gods. And Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. He understands. It's impressed upon him in that moment that Daniel has told him the truth. And then we see the king gives Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him rule over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And in fact, as chapter 2 wraps up, Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are elevated to places of great authority and honor, and it actually sets up the events that we'll cover next week. But in this chapter, what's going on? This. Daniel's being used by God to show the greatness and wisdom of God for the glory of God in a culture opposed to that God. And those are the marching orders for the modern-day church, the marching orders for Blue Valley living in our own modern-day Babylon. We live in a world, as I've said already, where increasingly religion is in service of politics. It is secularized, and God is wanting the church in this culture to be used by Him to show the greatness and the wisdom of God for the glory of God in a culture that is desperate for something around them to make some sense. And it's a purpose that we can accomplish if we will follow The pattern modeled for us in Daniel chapter 2. Let me show you three things, not two, not four. I'm a preacher. There will be three. Here's the first. This chapter shows us that crisis is the church's opportunity. Crisis is the church's opportunity. And by any measure, Daniel is dealing with a crisis, a matter of life or death in chapter 2. But I want you to note it isn't because of religious persecution here. Uh, That'll be next week. But here, it's not religious persecution. The crisis is purely political. A despot has determined that he can't trust his advisors, and in the absence of any kind of checks and balances, he opts for execution as the means to accomplish national security. So Daniel's head is on the chopping block, not because of his faith. That comes later. Not because of his faith, 
But because he lives in a fallen world, and sometimes things in a fallen world stink. This reminds us that not every crisis facing the church is the result of an effort to marginalize it. Sometimes in a sinful world, bad things happen, and the church and secularists are just all caught up in it at the same time. But listen to me. The response of those two distinct groups should be starkly different from one another as they are portrayed here in chapter 2. Babylon, let's let Babylon represent the advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon turns inward. When faced with an impossible set of circumstances, they look at their own capacities and they see only, only their limitations. And they don't know how they can rise to meet the, the level of the crisis. And this leads them to what? It leads them to utter despair. But the church, and let's have Daniel represent the response of the godly, the church here. The church in this culture looks past their limitations to the God who's limitless. Looks past their limitations to the God who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And leaning into the God who provides these things allows them to face impossible circumstances with strength, strength born of his wisdom, and not face it only with their own limitations. And this makes it possible for two things to arise in Daniel. It gives him a, frankly, supernaturally generous heart, and it allows him to be confident in the face of danger. I want you to look at verse 24 of Daniel 2. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise of the men of Babylon. He went and thus said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He doesn't go in and say, don't kill me and don't kill my friends. He says, don't kill any of us. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king his interpretation. He knows who his God is. He's confident in who his God is. He knows that God has a purpose in this moment for him. He doesn't know what that is. He may not get the dream interpretation, but he has utter confidence in God, and that allows him to not view people who are opposed to him as his enemies. It allows him to be able to seek their good because he had what he needed from the Lord. The crisis that had debilitated secular Babylon Daniel viewed as an opportunity to gain glory for God. Now, Babylon has grown in influence in my adult life. I don't believe the hysterical nonsense that the church is being persecuted in America mainly because I think that does a terrible disservice to those Christians who are actually being persecuted for their faith, who actually can't gather for worship for a week, who actually, on penalty of death, give praise to the Lord. I don't believe the church is being persecuted, but I absolutely don't deny that animosity towards the church has grown to unbelievable levels in my lifetime and that it is increasing exponentially, maybe even leading someday to persecution. I do think that we all feel that times are different. 
that we are in a crisis unlike the church has ever faced in America. And I'm afraid that our response has been to seek our own preservation from the state. We look for opportunities to maintain our cultural standing or to acquire political power, which essentially communicates that God exists to perpetuate our political agenda, our cultural agenda, whatever it is. Daniel instead saw an opportunity in this moment to gain glory for God. For the church to show the greatness and wisdom and glory of God in American Babylon will have to learn to view the crisis that we face as an opportunity and not the end of God as we know it. It's an opportunity for us to give glory to Him. And then we'll have to understand that God Himself and nothing else is the church's testimony. What's the church for? What's it about? God, that's our testimony. A wonderful book written by a pastor I admire named John Piper is titled simply, God is the Gospel. God is the good news. Let me ask you an honest question. What is the church in America known for today? I want you to be honest. I want you to think about that. What is the church in America known for today? If we are honest, I think we would have to say that churches like ours are known more for our moral stances on certain issues or our political activism than anything else. I mean by that, if you see Baptist on the side of a building or Methodist on the side of a building, you can say with a reasonable degree of certainty what is important to them morally and how they vote in November. And if you were to talk to someone who is completely disconnected from church life, they would likely tell you that they believe that the vote drives the morality, that the, the vote is not in response to the morality. You can think what you want. We are all collectively in a silo here, though, ideologically. And you step outside of that silo, and things get very, very different. That is the testimony that the church gives in our culture. But when Daniel stood before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar asked him essentially, what are you about? What are, what are you here to accomplish? What's your goal? And, and Daniel could have said, well, I'm the guy that's going to save your bacon. I'm the guy who is going to be able to, to give you an answer to a question that you have asked every religious leader around you and they've been able, unable to do it. I'm the guy who is going to be able to preserve your influence and to maintain your power. That could have been its testimony. But instead, in verse 27, we read that this is his testimony. No wise men... Enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God. Powerful words. The most powerful words in chapter 2 for my money. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these, and then he goes on to say them. He says, I'm nobody, 
On my own, I've got no better information than all of these people who are cowering in fear in front of you, but God is great. That's my testimony to you. God is great, the giver of wisdom. His testimony was God. For the church to gain God glory in American Babylon, we need to be known more for our God than our moral stances, which are important and even required for our obedience. I'm not minimizing that. And we need to be known more than who will vote for in November, as important as it is to exercise your freedom to vote. Our testimony to the culture before and above everything else is but God. There is a God. That's what should fill our eyes as we read and our ears as we hear and our social media feeds as we produce content. We need to be before and above everything else about the greatness of our God. And then finally, to show God's wisdom and greatness in our culture for His glory, we'll have to see that gaining Him that glory is the church's purpose. That's why we're here. It is to do just that. Because we're hardwired, as we are, to expect a happy ending from God, our eyes are drawn to the verses at the end of chapter 2, where Daniel gets a, a really important position, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get really important positions, positions of power, positions of influence, and that has become the American evangelical dream. If we can gain political power, if we can have political influence, that's how we can change our culture. That's how we can reverse the flow of everything that we see that troubles us. That's how we can make a difference. I would just remind you that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all before the end of chapter 6, by the same state that elevated them here and gave them that power, have their executions decreed unsuccessfully, rather hysterically in both cases, but have their executions decreed, showing us that political power and influence is fleeting, which is why in Scripture we are never called to seek it out. So the story at the end of Daniel 2 isn't that Daniel and the boys have been appointed to the cabinet and elected to Congress. The story the true fulfillment of their purpose is a few verses earlier. This is why all of this happened. Look at verse 47. After having revealed to the king the dream and the interpretation, and after having reminded the king again that God is the God who, who deserved all the credit, Nebuchadnezzar says, verse 47, truly your God is the God of God and the Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. Daniel didn't gain glory for God and influence his culture at all levels because he curried a king's favor. He made a difference in his world because he always directed that king and pauper alike to the greatness and the glory of God. That is our purpose as a church. Not just Blue Valley, but the church in America. That's our purpose, to direct people 
to the glory of God. It's not that issues don't matter. It's not that we shouldn't be active and involved. But what we are doing, and I will go to my grave believing this, what we are doing is we've moved past being active and stewards of our freedom to telling the world that this is our hope. It's not our hope. God is our hope. His glory is our opportunity. This is what we need to be sharing with the world. If the church is going to be the church, rather than just some kind of religious expression in service of politics, it will require us to seek every opportunity, be it an opportunity born of a, a blessing or be it an opportunity born of crisis to testify to God's greatness and to call people to bow before His glory. Now, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The church cannot be corporately what we are not as individuals. I mean, we can't expect the church to be something that we are not. So in order for the church to fulfill its purpose, we must live that purpose out on a, on a personal level, which means that our testimony as individuals needs to be God. And our purpose needs to be His glory. So in light of all of this, let me challenge you to do one thing over the next few weeks that will hopefully build in you the practice for the rest of your life of living a life where God is your testimony and your purpose is His glory. We are 23 days away from election, which means we're 24 days away from your mailbox not being filled with junk. In the next 23 days, God will be invoked. Both sides, you can listen for it. God will be invoked and betrayed in a way that communicates that God exists to keep our side, whatever our side is, in power. And so we are in an era of American life where every election feels like an existential crisis where we've convinced ourselves that the soul of America and the future of the American church is in the balance with every vote cast, that God actually wins or loses with every vote cast. That is the testimony of the church. So in order for it to not be your testimony, I want to call you to do the most difficult thing that maybe some of you have ever done. I want to call you to a political fast for 23 days. You can still eat Twinkies and Ding Dongs, all right? But I want to call you to a political fast. It's okay. My guess is there's not a single person in this room that needs more information to know how they're going to cast their vote. I mean, in fact, most of us have long since decided that how we're going to cast our vote. In fact, most of us know how we're going to cast our vote before we even know who the candidates or what the issues are. I mean, we just do. I always see this. There's so many for this people person, and there's so many for this person, and this many are undecided. And I say, well, who are those people? Who's undecided in American culture right now? Everybody is sure of themselves on everything, it seems like to me. I don't know who the undecideds are, but most of us already know Everything we need to know in order to be able to cast our vote. So you don't need more information over the next 23 days. You just don't. So I want to encourage you to shut down your politically motivated reading. Shut down your politically motivated TV watching. Shut down 
your politically motivated internet browsing. I want you to steer out of political conversations, and I want you to steer into conversations about God's goodness and faithfulness to you. I want you to purge political posts on Facebook and Twitter for the next 23 days. And I don't want you to move them to Instagram where I happily exist outside of all of that. You know, Instagram exists for me to show pictures of what I'm eating and my grandchildren and my bird dogs. That's all it exists for. Don't bring your political squabbling to Instagram, I beg you. And instead of posts and emails and conversations, just replace it all with proclamations of God's faithfulness. Here's what God is doing for me. Here's how he's good for me. Rather than spend all of your time reading and ingesting more information, pick up your Bible. And I'm not being trite or trivial here. I'm not saying run from the world and hide your Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying fill your mind with the testimonies of God's people and the encouragement of God's Word. Read books that inspire you to greatness for God. I've said this before. I'll say it again. Greatest book outside of the Bible that I've ever read is To the Golden Shore, Life Story of Adoniram Judson. You want to be challenged to live for the glory of God? Read that book. I jammed that down my kids' throats so much as they were growing up that I have a grandson named Judson now. Do that rather than to feast on the noise of unanswerable questions that exist in our secularized world. Because we have an opportunity in this latest crisis election to gain glory for God by making Him our testimony. Let's make